Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. It is not an Albuquerque-only problem, but how the city deals with it certainly gets a lot of, if not the most, attention in New Mexico. Homelessness is a problem that I think most people, even our guests today, probably would agree it's a complicated issue to try and solve. The latest federal stats from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, indicate that New Mexico today has more than 3,330 people experiencing homelessness, with more than 1,300 here in Albuquerque. So we've talked about this issue here before on the podcast on two notable different threads in how Albuquerque has dealt with it. One of those topics being the closure of Coronado Park, which became a de facto homeless camp over the years, particularly during the pandemic. The second big topic we've covered, the city's response in part to homelessness and behavioral health issues, that being the Albuquerque Community Safety Department. That's the third tier of emergency responders now, social workers who are often dealing with the unhoused. But that doesn't really even begin to scratch the surface, though, those two topics in how the community responds or reacts to homelessness. A lot of people in Albuquerque, whether it's businesses, neighborhood groups, or maybe your friends and family, they all have something to say about the problem. But even if you don't feel directly impacted by homelessness, I think a major area of concern for people living in Albuquerque has been crime and things like drugs, homelessness, mental health issues. They all play a role in how safe people feel when they're out in the community. At the center of all of it in Albuquerque is, of course, the mayor, Mayor Tim Keller. Now in his second term in office, he is clearly a prominent figure in Albuquerque's response to homelessness and other issues, among other players. He's a first-time guest here on the podcast. He joins us to talk about the issue. Mayor Keller, thanks for being here to speak with us today. Yeah, good to be with you. It's a wonderful topic. We're glad to get your perspective on it because, again, as I mentioned, it is such a broad and, you know, it's a complicated issue. We did a recent episode about Coronado Park. We heard homelessness and politics surrounding it described by Peter Rice, editor, publisher of the Downtown Albuquerque News. He described it pretty bluntly as the, quote, problem from hell. He was saying that, I think in context, that it is a never-ending problem. It is something that has many different threads to it. It's compounded by a lot of factors. And one thing I've heard as a reporter for years and just as a person living here in Albuquerque is, you know, what is the mayor going to do about it? What is the city going to do about it? So you're at the center of all of this. What is the problem of homelessness to you? Well, there's so many different places you could start. And I think, you know, the only best way to do it is to start in one area and sort of keep expanding uh, on on the topic. It's sort of the reverse onion, <laughs> if you will. But uh, so we can kind of start with Coronado. I just want to mention a couple of things like that. The statistics in the beginning, about 1,300 homeless folks, that's totally underestimated. I mean, our statistics are around 5,000 that are experiencing uh, sheltering issues and uh, upwards of 3,000 who are either living on the streets or in their car. So I think this is also just to, you know, highlight the fact that it's a national problem, but also a problem here. Um, it's way bigger than even the numbers say. And we see that. We know that driving around Albuquerque or walking around Albuquerque. So it's not a surprise to anyone, but I do think one of the things we try and do is just say, look, uh, this problem was was here before, you know, it just wasn't as big. 
And that journey of homelessness, I think, is important to reflect on in a sense of both Coronado Park and homelessness. So homelessness in general, you know, when I came into office, uh, Coronado Park already existed. It was already a you know, unsanctioned homeless encampment. And uh, we'll talk about sort of even five years ago, what my approach was to try and deal with that. So now the difference was uh, the volume of homelessness, obviously around our community. All of this across America is peaking post COVID. And there are many reasons which probably are not super relevant for us to go into because there's certainly national trends. But look, you know, why is homelessness up? I mean, everyone says, well, there's a lack of housing. Well, that's true. It's true all across America, but it's actually less bad in Albuquerque. So ironically, a lot of other cities are like, wow, your housing is relatively affordable and you have relative availability of housing. We don't have enough, that's for sure. But uh, I say this because we are better positioned than other cities. And that's relevant to some of the things that we're doing because we think we can actually handle this situation in a better way than a lot of our peers uh, because of some of those factors. Now, uh, unfortunately though, addiction is the opposite. We've had an addiction problem that has been way worse than the rest of America. And we've had that for a long time and it continues to be the case. And whether it was, you know, meth before, and now it's clearly fentanyl. Uh, these are issues that have gripped Albuquerque and New Mexico in a deeper and harsher and more spread out way than most communities across America. So that's kind of going into the situation where we were now Coronado park too had a COVID asterisk about it as well. You know, before COVID, uh, we were actually cleaning out Coronado Park and we were making a lot of progress. We had it down to, you know, a dozen or so folks who were there. And basically it was because we were just offering services and housing. And frankly, we were optimistic that we were winding down this terrible Coronado Park strategy. But the other reason why Coronado Park existed is because that's where the pickup and drop off was for the West Side Emergency Shelter. So our strategy was let's keep that West Side Emergency Shelter open year round because it was only open in the winter. And then uh, eventually people can just stay there and we don't need this whole Coronado Park thing. Then COVID hit and there were all these concerns for the health of social workers and the health of the homeless. And it was like, look, we frankly have bigger issues. And so we're just going to have to deal with Coronado Park later. Later, because of COVID basically turned out to be this summer. And we knew it was really, if you think about it, it seems like an eternity ago, but in the spring, you know, it was like, hey, everyone mostly is vaccinated and we're living with this and now we need to figure out what to do with Coronado and so forth. And so for us, we actually just revisited what we were doing beforehand. And there absolutely was a plan too. The plan is just to get everyone services and housing. The issue is not everyone wants that. There is a section of the homeless community uh, that is very diverse, first off. Every individual is different. But the Coronado community, there was a section that we know was extremely violent. That's been well documented. And now there are certain people in jail for um, literally homicide. Uh, We know there was uh, trafficking going on, human trafficking. And we know there was... um, uh, you know, 10,000 fentanyl pills that were recovered out of a dealer's tent, essentially there. So there's the criminal element. There's the wants to live um, 
in that situation and does not want help element. And then there's a bunch of other elements. So, you know, we did house like 45 people when we went into Coronado and, and, and we're so much better off for that as a city. And so are those individuals. Uh, and we also know that there's a mental and behavioral health connection where people need treatment. And that's where things get really difficult because in New Mexico and in the rest of America, there is not enough places where people can go with that are low barrier where they can get that mental health and behavioral health treatment. The last thing I'd say before we kind of move on to this is I know is, you know, when I was a kid, Mayor Chavez was the reason for everything, good or bad, didn't matter. I mean, Marty's the mayor and it's his fault. <laughs> right, people put a lot of blame on yeah. the executive, the and chief so executive. I know that's part of the gig and I, I still see Marty and I tease him about that because now it's certainly, you know, I, I have the same, people view me in the same way. But uh, it is important though that, you know, I, I, I always think a leader of our city should do everything they can. But when it comes to things like behavioral health and mental health, you know, the city does not provide those services. I mean, we never have. Those are state functions. The county has a role to play. And so as we continue this conversation, uh, what we're trying to do is, is bring everyone together to say that we all have to help out with homelessness. There's no way the city of Albuquerque can do this by itself. Uh, and frankly, we weren't doing it before. That was why, you know, we took certain steps as a city to create a new department of social workers to keep the West side shelter open, to open up homeless hotels, to do the gateway center. So like the city, we're all in times 10 and I need everyone else to pitch in and help. That also includes the nonprofit community and the faith community. Uh, we're growing up as a city, and that means we also have grown up problems when it comes to homelessness. What we're, what we're really far behind on is coordinated efforts in these areas, public and private sector. Uh, we're still in kind of a 1980s model in how we do this, which is basically the city's gonna cut you a check to help out, and that's never gonna cut it for Albuquerque, New Mexico going forward. So that's what we're really focused on as we move uh, into the future. I want to get into some of those other topics that you breached just now, but about the big announcement that you made last month about the closure of Coronado Park, a longtime city park. If you're not familiar, it's right near I-40 in downtown, where at its peak, more than 100 homeless people were camping out. Since that park did officially close on August 17th, we've heard from some people who say a lot of those folks who refused services, they've moved their tents to other pockets of the city and dispersed maybe into other neighborhoods unregulated. What's your assessment of what's happened since the closure? Are you satisfied? Well, just to be clear, they were not regulated before. I mean, so this notion that somehow a tent in an alley is unregulated and it was different beforehand is actually the opposite. I mean, we were, uh, you know, the crime that I mentioned and so forth has disappeared. And so by definition, it was, I, I believe, a very good thing and an urgent thing that we closed Coronado. It was the most dangerous place in the state of New Mexico. So I know that it might've created, you know, smaller issues all around the community, but you know, this is what leadership is about. I got to make tough decisions. And, um, this one was one actually that was not very difficult. Uh, once it became that dangerous, uh, anything is basically better than what we had at Coronado Park when literally people are being stabbed and they're being killed and they're being trafficked in a city park. Police are investigating after they say that a man was beaten at an Albuquerque park. We're following breaking news for you this morning. Albuquerque police have made an arrest in the June murder of a man at Coronado Park. APD and the DEA have arrested what they say are the major drugs 
drug and gun suppliers at Coronado Park and the ambassador So that doesn't change the fact that we have to deal with these folks on our streets. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to note, you know, so where did folks go? As I mentioned, you know, half of them found housing. And so that alone is a victory. But when you see an encampment, you know, on the west side, it's not from Coronado Park. Like this problem is so much bigger than closing Coronado Park. So I also think, you know, we need to talk about encampments. We need to talk about homelessness. But I have to tell you, like closing Coronado Park, all that did was eliminate that terrible nest of crime and drugs. Um, I never said it would fix or do anything with respect to broader homelessness. And so again, those issues essentially became separate. Now, you know, are there more encampments nearby in the community? Of course there's a few, but we're going to continue working on those as we do. And, uh, you know, frankly, that's still better than what we had uh, before at Coronado Park. So, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's like the, the least worst choice but you still got to make the choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that one was the best thing for the city of Albuquerque. And the last thing I just say on this is there's always a tension between, you know, a neighborhood and what they want and what's the best for the city. And at the end of the day, you know, I was elected and I swore an oath to do what's best for the city of Albuquerque. And I do know, and it's terrible. Sometimes that means that there are disproportionate input in impacts around the city. Uh, but that's, that's part of the burden of leadership. And so, um, someone's got to make the big decisions. And so that's what we elect a mayor for. And, uh, unfortunately it, it means that neighborhoods don't always get every single thing they want. Along the lines of sort of disproportionate neighborhoods and people saying, you know, this is impacting my life and this is how, um, you talked about how dangerous things were at Coronado Park. We had violence, weapons, homicide, one man who police say called himself the mayor of Coronado Park. We know he went to jail, but the idea, you know, that some of those problems, and this may be anecdotal, I don't know if APD has provided you with any other data, but we've heard from people like, for instance, in Southeast Albuquerque, where, you know, that stretch of San Pedro or near San Mateo, that there's more tents that popped up in the businesses or the big parking lots behind the businesses over there. What is the city's response to, I guess, those concerns about how to tackle now these smaller pockets of little mini communities that start popping up? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of big things that we're working on. You know, first though, I would just really, unless you actually know someone who came from Coronado Park, like they probably didn't. And that's not good news. It would actually be a good thing if we're just tracking down the 40 people who refuse services at Coronado Park. Sadly, it's way worse than that. So I, I think folks also just got to realize, like, get over Coronado Park. We need to address homelessness. Um, and so how we're doing that is really, I think, uh, what your question's all about. So there's a couple of things. I know there's been a lot of talk about safe outdoor spaces. I will tell you from my perspective, which ironically, I know the mayor is usually heard, uh, you know, in this particular issue, you know, this was never an idea that I thought was a panacea. I never thought it was a particularly amazing idea. But what I decided in June in our state of the city was that we need an all the above approach. So I say yes to any idea that will actually make the situation on our streets better. Hmm. So that is my stance. I do not think this is a incredible thing. I don't think it's going to change Albuquerque, but it's one idea and I think it will help a little bit. 
And so that's why we support it. So to answer your question, where can people go? Well, uh, some people can make it in a safe outdoor space. They refuse to go to a shelter. They refuse housing. They have different issues. And uh, if we can get them in an area that is secure and safe, where there are no um, uh, violent activities like was happening at Coronado Park. It's under supervision. There are bathrooms. And most importantly, it is a community organization that's supporting it. So it's a church. Uh, many of them have applied for this. And I think the city should support nonprofits that want to help the homeless. And so we need help. And so I'm interested in any policy that will help others join in that fight against homelessness. Now, uh, let me, I think you asked a, a broad question. So that's one small way that we can offer uh, something. The biggest way, there are two uh, other things that we're working on. Number one is the this Gateway Center. And so folks know the old Loveless out on Gibson and the city purchased that. It was voted on by, uh, by the voters. And my goal is, you know, in, in its heyday, it helped 1,000 people a day, roughly. And we all know, we all have stories from, I, I mean, I used to go there to visit people who are in the hospital and so forth. Well, what our community needs is that to be helping 1,000 people dealing with either mental, behavioral health, or homelessness. And that's our goal. And we're a third of the way there. Right now, the building is roughly a third used. There's about 350 people there, and they are getting drug treatment help. They are getting uh, mental health treatment. And uh, that is what we need. This will, uh, over the course of the next year, almost be at full capacity, about 80%. And it's going to help hundreds of people a day. And uh, lastly on this, you know, when I first ran, I said our city will never see a significant difference in homelessness until we have a place people can go that is open 24-7 with no barrier. So if you're inebriated, if you're on drugs, it's just you have to have a place where people can go and then get help. We still don't have that. We didn't have it five years ago. We didn't have it 20 years ago. We still don't have it. We're only we're one of the only major cities in America that does not have a facility like this. The 24-7 first responder drop-off at the Gateway Center is going to fill that need for everyone, whether it's an individual or a nonprofit. That is the most critical part because that enables people to have an alternative between staying on the street or the emergency room, which is, you know, for decades, our emergency room has been gummed up by this issue. And then people are just let out after they get some help or jail, uh, which we know is uh, similar essentially in New Mexico. So at the end of the day, like this hopefully is going to make a significant difference in what we see in our streets. Now I will say this though, it's not going to eliminate homelessness, but we think we can take about 25% of the people we all see or know each and every day, and they will be helped by the gateway center. That would be the biggest single initiative for the unsheltered in the history of our city. And it's long overdue and it's finally going to happen in 2023. We do want to talk a little bit more about the Gateway Center, but I, I want to jump back a little bit to the safe outdoor spaces part of this conversation, too, because I know that that certainly has uh, sparked a lot of interest from the community, to say the least, over the last year here. Las Cruces, as an example of Camp Hope, it's been seemingly a very successful safe outdoor space for them for the last 11 years on any given night that's between 40 to 50 people camp hope in las cruces has given thousands of homeless people a safe place to stay but it's also kept them you know from sleeping in business doorways 
Um, instead, they're, they have their own safe place right here. Essentially what these are for folks who maybe want to use a different series of words to describe them, a sanctioned homeless camp with a series of rules, as you had mentioned, Mayor, sponsored by a community group who's really kind of keeping the eyes and ears over what happens. There's capacity limits built in there. Um, I did want to ask you, for folks who feel that these ideas of these safe outdoor spaces are scary, you know, because it's a homeless camp next to where they may live. Um, what do you tell them to the folks who maybe feel still concerned about the idea generally that there's essentially a sanctioned homeless camp? Well, I think the first thing is that it is much safer than what is happening outside your door right now. So in any stretch of the word, uh, safety, you are way better off with a regulated encampment that has also even things like a bathroom. So they're not using your yard as a bathroom. So it's just not even comparable to the, the sort of situation that is unregulated that could be occurring near your community. The other thing is they're temporary, you know, no one wants sanctioned encampments forever anywhere. And, you know, we're, we're looking at six month approvals. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope there aren't any in a few years. And so I think we also got to understand that you have to come up with answers for a given time, but, um, that doesn't mean things are permanent. I mean, even Coronado park, I know it was around for like seven years, but it's not around anymore. And you know what? All those businesses are very grateful for that. And so, uh, I, I think we also just have to kind of understand that like in the grand scope of living in Albuquerque, uh, these are small blips, uh, that may exist for a year or two. I wanted to ask an inside baseball kind of question about safe outdoor spaces. Of course, the moratorium passes. Albuquerque City Councilors could have the final say on city-sanctioned homeless camps. City Council passed the year-long delay on any sanctioned encampments on August 15th. A group of councilors come forward, pass that moratorium, comes to your desk, you veto the moratorium. Mayor Tim Keller has vetoed the moratorium on sanctioned homeless camps. Now the city council is looking to overturn that veto. It goes to a veto override vote and suddenly Councillor Trudy Jones steps in and says she is not going to vote for the veto override. The city of Albuquerque can have sanctioned homeless camps. This comes after another controversial vote failed in city council this evening. City Councillor Trudy Jones changed her vote last night preventing a moratorium on the camps from taking effect again. Therefore, your veto stands uh, for safe outdoor spaces and this moratorium that had been tr attempted to be passed. The inside baseball question part of that, were you part of any of that conversation? Because, you know, I know you raised just a few minutes ago that you're willing to say yes to any of these sort of fresh ideas, different ideas to help towards homelessness. Was your administration at all involved in maybe having that conversation with the counselors after that moratorium happened, after the veto as well happened, um, did, you, did you guys play any role in trying to say, hey, let's come back to the drawing board and figure out if we can work this out? Well, we, I mean, you're, I, I love an insider baseball question just because, you know, most people don't really care, uh, but also I'm happy to talk about it, but, um, the, cares. Uh, you're welcome. yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, um, Look, I think there's two things. One is we talk to counselors all the time. I mean, literally on a weekly basis on a range of issues, uh, not just this issue. And so that certainly continues. Uh, and it was in that process too. But I think what's 
what's really interesting about this, and I um, think also drove some of the outcome, you forgot the first part of the story. Council passed this. Right. Counselor Brooke Bassan was the sponsor of this bill and it passed and I signed it. And then two months later, they try and end it. And so uh, from my perspective too, that's just, you can't govern that way. Mm. It's okay if you want to do it a year later or if we test it or if we pilot it, I, I get, I mean, I learn from mistakes every day, but you got to give stuff a chance. And so I do think um, that also was a problem for this issue from day one. I mean, they should have just voted on it. And then if they didn't like it next year, changed it. And they know this, this isn't a surprise, you know. Um, now they felt passionate that they, you know, needed to do what they got to do and they are their own elected official. So I always respect them for that. And they, they have the ability to, to vote however they want to vote and they should, that's part of how our government works. But I think where Councilor Jones's wisdom came in, and I say that because, you know, it's hard I've been there. I mean, I was a, a state legislator, a senator. I know what it's like to make votes and then worry about them after. I know what it's like to get phone calls. I know what it's like to get hate. Uh, but I think it does sometimes take a more seasoned counselor or elected official who understands that uh, these votes are on different things. You might not like safe outdoor spaces anymore, but should the city do an about face after two months? That's a different question. And I think that's the way she was looking at it. She is, I understand, I don't want to ever speak for her, but her logic that she shared publicly was more to the effect of like, let's give it a chance. And if we don't like it, we'll all get rid of it. And so I think that comes from a place of leadership. Frankly, it just shows that uh, you got to have good governing and policy making. You can't just change what you want to do because a couple of your neighbors, you know, uh, really lit into you at a community meeting. And I know that's hard. I mean, I actually, this is the one, like, I do know it's hard. Like, that's the story of everywhere I go. But we, we have a, you know, Republican form of government. That's, you know, not the partisan form. Right. And we delegate our responsibility to elected officials. And if we don't like what they do, then we're supposed to vote for other elected officials. This is not a direct democracy. We do not have referendums where you have a town hall and your community just says, well, we don't like this. And then you change your vote. That, that's just literally not American. That is not how we do things. And so I think, uh, I think really what Trudy stood up for also was our city council form of government. You know, uh, you represent people. You do not vote for what they want you to vote for. There's a big difference there. Switching back to the Gateway Center, you know, it was raised as a possible solution part of the homelessness problem. It's been a big project of yours, that old medical center off of Gibson and San Mateo. Over the last five years, it also faced pushback, like you've mentioned, from neighbors in that community. But it is now on track to open as a 24-7, quote, low barrier facility, meaning people can be dropped off by first responders any day or any time of day or night. They don't have to be sober. They don't need things like an ID. I know there's more to it, but I don't know if you can like summarize what is your main hope for this facility? Just kind of going back to a little bit of our previous discussion. I hope that a thousand people get help there every day and we're going to be up to about 750 uh, by the summer. And uh, that's, that's the goal. That should be a place of help and support for folks from all walks of life, uh, no matter what situation you're in. And I think it's, it's long overdue. Now I think we're, we're kind of going back and forth, but you mentioned Las Cruces and, right. and, and, and what they do. 
And I think what, what also is if you go visit, I've been down there, it's not an encampment. It's not a sanctioned encampment. Uh, the Las Cruces center is the gateway center with allowable tents behind it. So what I mean by that is the Las Cruces situation is a campus. They have behavior and mental health right there. You walk from your tent into the clinic. They have food right there. They even have daycare right there. That's what, what it is a inspiration for the gateway center. And so the gateway is modeled after a program in San Antonio and Las Cruces and Tucson. That's what it's modeled after. So I do think it's also like, yes, while a certain section of Las Cruces model is tense, what people forget is that all around it is a bunch of services that, that, that are literally just across like a walkway. And so uh, that's what we hope for the gateway to be in a sense of, it is a campus of support for a thousand people a day. Uh, regardless of what you're ailing from. And then it should also be sort of a clearinghouse. No one should stay at the gateway for a long time. That's the other issue. You should be placed into housing. I mean, the ultimate answer is housing, but not everyone's ready for housing. Meaning if I'm heavily addicted and you just give me an apartment, I'm going to stay addicted. And also maybe have a negative influence on those suffering around me who are trying to recover. And it's the same with some mental illness issues. So we have to get people ready for housing. That's what the gateway is for. And then to answer your question is a thousand people a day, but uh, over a couple of weeks, those thousands of people then find job training or housing uh, or the help that they need long-term or reunited with their families. I know there was also some built-in delays with the pandemic and just uh, construction at the facility as well. Um, it's on track to open. It was originally supposed to open this winter, right? Now we're looking towards summer. I read at first there's going to be just 50 beds available for women only, but you're talking about a big growth in the next uh, year or two. What's been the main delay in getting the Gateway Center up and running? Well, um, there's been several and it's the same with all our construction projects. You know, I, this uh, last weekend was at a groundbreaking at this place called the Valle de Oro. I, I put money into that project 10 years ago when I was a state Senator and we just finished it. And it, it's just a welcome center, you know, and like a museum sort of, and you know, our international district library put money into that 11 years ago as a state Senator, we just opened it and look, everything is late. I mean, the pandemic is part of it. It's just a materials and a construction uh, cost thing that's happening all over America. That's, but that's only one part. The other part of the delay was, you know, it was appealed uh, by the neighborhood there. And that <laughs> certainly set it back at least nine months. Um, and uh, the last part is, the, you know, the building itself, I think what we've uh, changed in a sense is uh, we were going to originally just gut the whole building and redo it. And that's just too expensive and takes too long. So now we're having a phased approach. And so we're starting, as you said, with that, but then we're adding more and more. And there's still, there's one part that's, that's in pretty bad condition that maybe like five years down the road, we finally get to that. So, um, you know, we basically said that let's start using it more sooner instead of trying to redo the whole thing at once. Just to be clear, target opening date and how many people do you first want in there building up to a certain number? What's the, again, strategy at this point? Well, we're aiming for in December or January. We're saying winter, December, January, again, because like when you really get down to like, is it, does code sign off on it? And, you know, all this, um, 
this winter, we're going to open those 50 beds. And, uh, and then we're going to look at that uh, drop-off program starting. And those are the most important. But then really soon after that, in June or July, we expect to then open um, what's called a medical respite area. And this is really important, uh, even for people, we didn't really talk about this, but a lot of the people on the streets are unsheltered. They have a medical wound and they got ER treatment, but they can't stay in a healthcare facility for longer for all sorts of reasons. And so again, they, they, they need supervised medical attention. Um, and the other one, of course, is the behavioral health uh, section of that, um, which we, we also expect to open. I mean, it already does. We already do behavioral health. So, uh, but to expand that, we're looking at that in July. Okay. And by July, how many people do you think that this facility will be available to? We're aiming for 700. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Which, I mean, it would be extraordinary. Again, it's the, it's the biggest thing our city has ever done in our history for this community. Will the Gateway Center be that all-encompassing campus? Like you mentioned, you know, San Antonio has its haven for hope. And I know that has been touted by so many people for years as, as the centralized way to deal with homelessness. Mm-hmm. Will Gateway Center be the sumerial place for all the services you think the the san antonio model is something a lot of us went to and looked at including unm that was actually i mean there's there's lots of fun ironies in this whole story that you know when i first came into office it was unmh who said you got to come with us to san antonio we want to do one of these at unm (laughs) yeah and you know there were changes uh you know in some of the people involved and uh they obviously in i mean in, in all sorts of levels at UNM and, and the, the, you know, current administration decided to take a different tack, uh, after we had outlined that proposal. And so, uh, but it was in some ways, a, a, a blessing actually, because the Loveless Center is in a relatively good location. There's, there's public, uh, you know, access it's right next to the VA. So we, there's a lot of coordination that we're going to do for veterans, which is great. Um, it obviously is an existing facility. So I think we're able to do much bigger, uh, faster out at Loveless. And I, off the top of my head, I have to look up the original plans, but I think the original plans for the UNM location were for 250 people. We're talking about a thousand. And now like, thank goodness, cause we need help for a thousand. So in many ways, this is much bigger. Um, now, uh, I think the other aspect of this though, is in terms of, you know, the, your notion of sort of the San Antonio model is it's really one stop cause they even have housing there. And this is a, a variation of that. It's different in a, a really important way. In the San Antonio model, you can actually stay there for a long time because they have housing. The gateway is meant to be a gateway. So we believe that we have, unlike San Antonio, enough nonprofit providers and housing stock and housing voucher money, where once you're ready for housing, we can find you housing. And that's a great thing for Albuquerque. So that's why the gateway is just meant to be this place that you pass through to then be sorted out to the right kind of provider, whether it's the Barrett house or, um, you know, even joy junction. I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, avenues people can go and that's a great thing. So we're not trying to in any way duplicate or replicate that, but it does provide that singular place 
as a starting place. So it's almost a portal is like another way to look at it. Like you start there, you may end up all over the place, but we're going to provide you that transport. That's part of the model. Uh, it's not a pedestrian facility. Everything is supposed to be transport in, transport out. There is no walk-in approach at this point. And so in, in, so in, in many ways it's similar because all the services are there, but in one key uh, difference uh, that is different than San Antonio is you're not supposed to stay at the gateway. Uh, you're supposed to go get the right kind of help when you're ready at the right place somewhere else in town. I have a behavioral health related question for you. Bear with me. So along the lines of people getting help under your administration, an entirely new department was created to sort of dictate behavioral health responders and social workers toward those specific efforts. So we've had the Albuquerque Community Safety Director on the podcast. Go check out that episode. She uh, explained a lot about how the program works. and It was super helpful. But we also know a lot of those folks refusing services or choosing to stay on the streets, they're people who've been offered services multiple times. Some may suffer from mental health, uh, mental illnesses or addiction. We have behavioral health hospitals in New Mexico. We know they're not, you know, city services, but they do exist. Some people are sometimes court ordered to undergo treatment at these facilities, say if they've committed violent crimes or if they're found incompetent to stand trial. What are your thoughts on civil commitments for treatment centers like this? I mean, I know civil commitments do happen, but mm -hmm. one of the questions raised to me was, should they happen more often maybe? Well, uh, there, as you mentioned, there is a process for this. And I think if we look at, before we think about like changes to the process, I think we should look at the limitations of the process now. And the limitation is places to go. So, you know, statewide putting on, you know, my previous uh, hat as a state senator or a state auditor, uh, anyone from the state level will tell you we have a massive deficit of behavioral health and addiction treatment centers. And it was part of what was dismantled under the past governor's administration. Um, you know, they literally destroyed this system in New Mexico. And, you know, people ask me, what is the single worst thing you've ever seen in your public service career? It was that. That is a mistake that is going to haunt us for decades to come until we fix it. But it has to be at the state level. And so in, in general, before we start like, you know, trying to change how all the rules work, I think we should just say, let's make sure there's no capacity issue. As long as there's an empty bed, uh, then we can talk about like why that bed isn't filled. But right now we're short like thousands of beds. So let's focus on that. And so uh, that's really where I look at it. And, you know, also now I, I always think it's, it's important to wear like the hat that you have as mayor of Albuquerque, I mean, this stuff is all state and county behavioral health. So I try and provide input, share information, but, you know, just as I'm held accountable for all sorts of things, those levels are really the, the level of accountability for behavioral health in New Mexico. We know that the county as well has a dedicated fund for behavioral health. That was something that voters passed several years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly which year it was, but that has been accruing, you know, funding for, for years now. Um, I know that that has recently come up. The main question of that is what's happening with that money? Is there a coordinated approach? Where do you see is the next step maybe for that that county funding, should we be doing more to have more of a cohesive conversation? Because I recall at the beginning of this, he said, this is a, a problem that needs to be solved on all levels. It's not just the city's issue. Yeah, I think, you know, the way I look at it is every entity should do what they can to help. So my answer to that question is I'll do whatever we can to help. 
the county and the state deal with this issue. And the best thing that we're offering right now is space at the Gateway Center. And wonderfully, the county has stepped up. They are a major funder of our respite uh, center at the Gateway. Now, we have to figure out how to operate it, which needs reoccurring operating money. So yes, we need UNMH's help, absolutely. We also need the county's help down the road. But I do think um, the county stepped up big uh, with respect to uh, our connection at the Gateway Center. So that's a really good thing. And we have something called the Homeless Coordinating Council that is connects UNMH and the county and the city. So we're working through all those issues. But again, from my perspective, I just say, what can we do to help? And uh, then, you know, I hope obviously that's reciprocated. And I think you're starting to see that with the county's investment in the gateway. And I hope soon, I think, you know, I mean, UNMH and us are close on on them helping out in some major ways that uh, will be just incredible for our community. So I actually see more progress in the last year than I have in the last four years on uh, that kind of issue. But system-wide and that tax funding-wide, the answer to me is just... It, it is all about bed space because these individuals actually do need help like in a situation where they're not in their home and so forth. So I just support anything that increases capacity. So if they want to quadruple the size of the CARES campus, I'm all in. Whatever I can do to help, that's what we need. With that in mind that the county is stepping up potentially to do something with the behavioral health funds that they have accrued. Is there anything specific you feel would be pivotal towards changing our city situation for the better? I think the biggest thing people can do is try and be part of the solution. And look, I'm as frustrated as everyone else in a sense of, you know, you drive around our city and what does it look like or issues about, I, I mean, I do the shopping in our family. It's, it started during COVID and my wife and I, like, I just am the guy who keeps, so I, I go to, you know, you name the grocery store um, and I know what it's like to feel unsafe. Uh, and I can't imagine, you know, also if, if I was in a more vulnerable position, just age wise or whatever, that how much more unsafe I would feel. So I understand this, but I think there's number one, let's, let's remember, like, this isn't really about our city. This is about America. And that's important. I think the second thing is to remember that these homeless individuals are from all walks of life and it's not a crime to be homeless. And while yes, some of them can be dangerous or some of them, uh, you know, are, are some of the sources of trash and things like this in our community. But when you think about those two things, then you realize, look, it doesn't matter. What matters is what we're doing to actually try and help the situation. And so whether it is adopting a safe outdoor space or whether it's advocating in front of city council or the county commission or the state legislature for behavioral health funding, uh, or whether it's just giving elected officials or, or uh, not even elected officials, but just city and county and state folks leeway to try and build something that will help people. Those are all things we can actually do. And so I would just say, have a bias towards action because we all know times are tough. We do. Uh, but it's not going to help to just keep either pointing at each other and saying you should do more or um, just retelling the story of how bad Coronado Park is, you know? And so I do think we owe it to our kids. And, you know, I have two young kids who they, same thing at school, they experience shutdowns because of, you know, unfortunate people who are walking around. And, you know, I mean, we're in this together. Uh, I would just say, try and find a way uh, to help us make our city better. Um, because I think at this point, these are tough times and we all know that. 
Is there anything, Mayor, that we didn't ask you that you want the public to better understand or just wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you? Um, you know, I think maybe just a couple of things, you know, one appreciate, uh, we had a good clarifying discussion, I think on safe outdoor spaces, number one, like they're not, they're not going to solve all our problems. They're frankly not that big of a deal. Whereas the gateway is a huge deal, you know, but I'm just saying we're also past that now. So let's, let's move on. And frankly, the more folks that will have them, the less people hopefully will have on the street. But I think there were a lot of myths around that. And so hopefully this has clarified that for folks. I think there's also some myths around, uh, camps. Um, you know, our city does, uh, clear 200 camps a month. Our challenges, you know, there's like thousands. So it's not, it's not a city policy or a will question. It's a resource question. Now we do it the right way also. So I also hear on, you know, sort of the other side, well, this, you know, we're just clearing out camps and this kind of thing. We never do that. Every single person who is approached by a city worker on the street has been offered services or a place to sleep at night that is safe and uh, that is, um, you know, hospitable in terms of temperature and so forth. We know there is excess capacity at the West Side Shelter, and I know a lot of people don't like it. We understand that. But I also know, you know, uh, just on kind of both ends of that, know we're trying hard. The city's, if anyone wants a job working in this area, I mean, we have dozens of vacancies. And then on the other hand, if if anyone thinks that that somehow uh, we're doing anything that might be in unconstitutional or inhumane, that is also just not true. Uh, we're very careful and we document all of that outreach. And so uh, this is a tough problem. And so I just appreciate actually the long form ability to talk about it because uh, I just want to thank you guys. You know, I have, no one has ever asked me to talk this long about this issue <laughs> ever. And so I appreciate at least the time to just clarify things, yeah. uh, no matter how people see it. We appreciate having you here to clarify this. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. You let us hammer you with a lot of questions, but we feel like they're important for everybody um, to understand. So thank you, Mayor. Appreciate it. You got it. Again, a special thank you to Mayor Tim Keller and all the city administrative staff that helped put this interview here together. We've been asking to uh, catch up with Mayor Keller on this issue of homelessness for the last several weeks. And so we're glad to finally bring this broad discussion about the issue. And hopefully some find it illuminating out there towards elements of this, again, very broad, big problem. It is interesting to see how our own city government is tackling these issues and see if any of these solutions will ultimately help in the long run. We'll have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, you can also reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at chris.mckee on krqe.com. That's via email. And you can catch me on at chrismckee TV on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. 